Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Hello, all. Schools have been closed through the end of the year in Michigan, where I live. So by the time this episode drops, not a whole lot will have changed on the whole social distancing count, but hopefully we will have reached the peak without overwhelming our hospitals. I hope all of you are safe and well and that your loved ones are too. Today's play is Antigone by Sophocles, and it is a play that is about death and grief. Suicide is a common theme in Greek tragedy, and this play is no different. It's not quite as dramatic as what we saw in Ajax, but do be prepared for the exodus of this play. I'm using the 1938 translation by Dudley Fitz and Robert Fitzgerald. I'm sure there are new tra- newer translations available, but this one is pretty good. It doesn't feel as old as it is. It's from their Oedipus Cycle, and if you're looking to buy, you might want to consider this edition. It was only listed as $10 when I bought it back in the 90s, and I can't imagine that it is terribly expensive if it is still in print today. And it contains all three of the plays Sophocles wrote about the Oedipus myth. We tend to think of Antigone as being the third play in Sophocles' Oedipus trilogy. And while it does come third chronologically, it was written first. It premiered around 441 BCE and won first prize at Dionysia. When we read the plays of Aeschylus, um, we see definite trilogies, plays that build upon each other and that were written together with the intention of being performed together. Now, Sophocles wrote three plays about the Oedipus myth, but they are not a trilogy in the same manner as in Aeschylus's plays. Today, Aeschylus would have written Back to the Future, while Sophocles would have written Indiana Jones. Do you remember when we read Seven Against Thebes and the kind of weird ending that may or may not have been written by someone else? And I commented how it's possible some impresario wanted to tie Seven Against Thebes seamlessly into Antigone. Well, that's where we are in the myth. Antigone is set just after the battle described in Seven Against Thebes. Polynices and Eteocles are dead, and the pronouncement has been made that only Eteocles will receive a proper burial, and that anyone who tries to bury Polynices will be punished. The cast is fairly small. We have Antigone and Ismene, the two daughters of Oedipus, their uncle Creon, who is now the king of Thebes, his son Haman, and wife Eurydice. The only other named character is Tiresias, the blind prophet. The unnamed characters are a guard and two messengers, and of course there is a homogeneous chorus in this play consisting of the Theban elders or the old men of Thebes. We'll take a quick break and come back for a summary of the plot. The prologue opens at dawn, outside of the palace. Antigone and Ismene enter. Antigone speaks of the grief they have suffered due to the curse on their family, and her anger that Creon has decreed that no one is allowed to bury their brother brother Polynices. She tells Ismene that she has decided to bury Polynices, and asks Ismene whose side she's on, Antigone's or Creon's. Ismene waffles. They've already suffered so much. They're only women. What can they really do? Antigone tells Ismene she's fine with this decision. She doesn't agree with her. She's still going to go ahead and bury Polynices. But if Ismene wants no part of it, then Antigone will do it herself. Ismene is scared. She tries to talk Antigone out of it. And the more she tries, the more frustrated Antigone gets. 
They part in one of those sister relationships that simultaneously, I hate you and I love you. The chorus enters and sings the parados. It tells of the battle of how Ateocles and Polynices killed each other. It's a short recap of what we read in Aeschylus' Seven Against Thebes. Creon enters. He tells the chorus that the ship of state has been righted and that he is now in charge and that his primary concern is for the public good. And then he explains that for the public good, Ateocles will be buried with full military honors, but Polynices' body will be left to the dogs. The reason Creon gives is that Polynices attacked Thebes and is therefore a traitor. The chorus says they will follow the will of the king, but they also say that they are too old to enforce the rules. Creon responds that he has already posted sentries to make sure his orders are carried out. One of the sentries enters. This is honestly a moment of levity in this play. He spends a lot of time externalizing his internal monologue. He knows that he's bringing news Creon doesn't want to hear, but he also knows that if he doesn't bring the bad news, that he'll be punished. He speaks slowly with cringes in between each thought as he waits for Creon to start wailing on him. It really is funny, I swear. Even if you don't read the entire play, you should read this section. Eventually, he spits out the news that somebody has given Polynices burial rites. Someone sprinkled dirt over the body. It's not exactly buried, but it's not exactly not buried anymore either. Creon is livid. The chorus suggests that this surreptitious burial might be the work of the gods. Creon can't imagine that the gods wouldn't agree with his decision not to bury Polynices, so it must be the work of his sentries. They must have been bribed by his enemies. The sentry swears that it wasn't him and it wasn't any of his comrades. Creon says that he'll only believe that if the sentry brings him the man who was responsible. Creon exits. The sentry grumbles about the impossible task before him before exiting to try and find the man Creon seeks. The chorus sings a stasimon about the nature of man. If you're familiar with Hamlet, this song reminds me of Hamlet's Oh, What a Piece of Work is Man speech. The song ends with a commentary on the role of the law in life, concluding by stating that a man who strays from the laws of the land will be cast out and find no warm hearth. The sentry leads Antigone on stage. The chorus is confused. They ask why she is being held captive. The sentry explains that Antigone is the man Creon seeks. Creon enters, and we have another scene in which the sentry stumbles over his words as he tries not to raise Creon's wrath, while offering news that Creon doesn't want to hear. Creon asks why Antigone is there, and the sentry explains that he and his comrades caught her red-handed, or, you know, dirt-handed. Creon puts on his disappointed dad voice and asks Antigone if the sentry is telling the truth. Antigone responds directly and honestly. If you want to visualize the scene, it's a bit like Ariel and King Triton in Disney's Little Mermaid. Antigone doesn't feel guilty because she doesn't believe she's done anything wrong. She believes she was following the laws of the gods, which she states supersede the laws of man. And she tells him that she knows that the punishment for burying Polynices is death, and she doesn't care. She's ready to die for her cause. Creon is offended that Antigone had the nerve to disobey him. And he's even more offended because she's a girl. And there's no way a girl could come up with this on her own. Two girls, sure, maybe, but not one. So he decides that his meanie must have been part of the plan, too. And he calls for her to be brought before him. Antigone is unfazed and tells Creon that the chorus is on her side despite their silence, that they are too afraid of Creon to speak the truth to power. He argues that bearing Polynices dishonors Creon. 
Antigone responds that she loves both of her brothers and that they both deserve the same treatment and death. Creon tells her that if she loves them so much that she can join them in hell. Ismene enters in tears. Creon asks her to confess to her participation in the crime. Ismene immediately does, but Antigone tells her that she has no right to do so because she refused when given the opportunity. Ismene argues that she's changed her mind and that she wants to suffer the same punishment. The sisters argue this point for a while. Antigone's tone softens throughout the argument, but she ultimately wins the point. Creon rolls his eyes at this exchange. He tells Ismene she's crazy to have claimed guilt when she was guiltless. Ismene responds that she doesn't want to live without Antigone and asks Creon how he could kill his son's fiancé. He responds that there are plenty of fish in the sea. Okay, he's not that polite. He says there are plenty of fields his son can plow. Charming. Obviously, Creon calls off the marriage. The chorus is shocked by this, but Creon doesn't care. He calls his guards to take Antigone and Ismene away. The chorus sings another short stasimon. They start out singing about the woes of the House of Oedipus and conclude by singing about fate and how it is impossible to escape the will of the gods. Haman enters. This is Creon's son and Antigone's now former fiancé. Creon asks if he has come with hate or with love. Haman says that he will obey his father. Creon then pontificates about how it is more important to obey one's father than marry one of those kind of women. You know, the ones. Those women who think they are as good as men, who are trying to change things. <laughs> who needs that kind of trouble? Haman responds by gently interceding on Antigone's behalf. He's not trying to be disobedient, but Creon doesn't hear everything the people think, and Haman is hearing that the people are on Antigone's side, so maybe it would be good for Creon to release her? And Creon responds exactly how you would expect him to. He tells Haman that he trusts his judgment and that he'll release Antigone. Of course not. He is furious that Haman would dare suggest a different path, that the people of the city would dare try to rule when he, Creon, is in charge. The argument is heated and ends with Haman storming off after telling Creon that he'll never see him again. Creon doesn't note this last statement, but the chorus does and speaks up. They share their concern that Haman is going to do something irreversible. Creon softens. Slightly. He decides that maybe punishing Ismene is a little extreme. But Antigone? No. She still defied him. But he won't kill her. He decrees that she will be locked in a stone vault. With a little food and water. You know, so she won't starve. At least, not immediately. So, if she dies, it will be because the gods didn't save her, not because she was locked up in a forking vault with no food or water. And if she does die, well, she asked for it, didn't she? The chorus sings a very short stasimon about how love makes people do crazy things. Antigone enters under guard. She says goodbye to the chorus and states that she now understands the grief of Niobe. For those of you who don't know this particular myth, Niobe had 14 children and taunted Leto for only having two. Except those two happened to be Artemis and Apollo, who were gods. And they didn't take kindly to Niobe insulting their mother and killed all of Niobe's children. Niobe herself was turned into a stone that weeps incessantly. This story is told very effectively in George O'Connor's Artemis graphic novel in his Olympian series, and I really should do a course that's a book club on that series. Maybe one or both of my fellow triumvirs would be interested in doing that with me. 
But back to Antigone. She doesn't tell us the story of Niobe because Sophocles' original audience knew the tale. But she does say that she understands a grief that is as strong as what Niobe suffered. The chorus tells her that maybe her protest was unreasonable, and maybe this is because of that whole deal with her father Oedipus. Antigone doesn't disagree. She wails about how her whole family is cursed. Creon tells her to can it and orders the guards to take her off to her punishment. Before exiting, Antigone states that, as much as she mourns the marriage that she will not have, at least now she will see her brothers and her parents again. And she gets one last shot in at Creon, praying that he will be punished equally to her the way she has been if she was, in fact, in the right. The chorus sings a stasimon about other mythological figures who were entombed, as Antigone is to be. The lesson they sing is that even the children of gods cannot escape this fate, so there is no hope that a mere mortal, born of mortals, will not be able to escape it either. A boy leads Tiresias on stage. Creon greets him and says that he has always followed the blind prophet's advice. Tiresias says that that's good and then gives a lengthy prophecy about how the gods are not pleased about the whole not burying Polynices thing and the whole authoritarian nature of his leadership style. He tells Creon to admit that he's only human and might have made a mistake. And Creon responds exactly as you, as you have probably come to expect him to. He tells Tiresias that prophets are only in it for the money, and that he, Creon, is done listening to him, Tiresias. After a bit of an argument, Tiresias reluctantly tells Creon that the price for his action is a corpse for a corpse, flesh of his own flesh. And then Tiresias tells his servant boy that they are leaving, and they do. Creon processes what Tiresias just told him and asks the chorus what he should do. They tell him that he'd better get a jump on it and go free Antigone and build a nice tomb for Polynices. He calls for his servants and brings to bring axes so that they can cut open the tomb in which Antigone has been imprisoned. Then the chorus sings a prayer to Dionysus. A messenger enters with some bad news. And in true Greek messenger fashion, he has a bit of trouble spitting out the words that make sense. They are dead. The living are guilty of their death. The chorus asks the messenger to explain. The they he referred to turns out to be Antigone and Haman, killed by his own hand. And of course, Creon, the chorus asks for clarification on whose hand, because it could be Haman or it could be Creon. The messenger explains that it is his own, as in Haman's, and the chorus wails that Tiresias was right. Eurydice enters, having overheard the commotion, and asks for the details, stating that she is familiar enough with grief to stand hearing whatever the messenger has to say. The messenger explains that Creon started by burying Polynices properly. When that was done, he and his servants hurried to the tomb. They heard wailing coming from the tomb and picked up the pace. At the tomb, they found Antigone had hanged herself with her veil. Haman had found her and now cradled her body as he wept. Creon tried to speak to Haman, but the son responded by drawing his sword and swinging at his dad. Haman missed Creon and then used the sword to kill himself. At the conclusion of the messenger's speech, Eurydice says nothing. She simply turns and exits, going back into the palace. The chorus is troubled by her silence, but the messenger is sure that all she wants is to go and cry in private. The chorus isn't so sure, so the messenger agrees to go inside to check on her. Creon and his attendants enter, carrying Haman's body. Creon laments his son's death and acknowledges his role in what has happened to his family. The messenger then re-enters, this time bearing the news that Eurydice, too, has killed herself, and she cursed Creon with her final breath. Creon is, well, to put it simply, shook. He asks why no one is attacking him. His actions have led to the deaths of everyone in his family, so clearly he should be punished with death. 
but the chorus won't kill him. They tell him that his punishment is to live with his suffering. Creon is led off by his attendants. The chorus concludes the play by stating that wisdom comes through submission to the gods, and pride goeth before the fall. That feels like a long synopsis. It really isn't that long of a play, but a lot happens very quickly in it. We'll take a short break and discuss a few of the themes when we come back. And we're back. Have you caught your breath yet? It's a pretty intense play, and a lot of it feels very current. The Conversation has an excellent analysis by Elizabeth Bobrick titled, What the Greek Tragedy Antigone Can Teach Us About the Dangers of Extremism. And I think she's right. Extremism is an underlying current throughout this play. We can see it in three primary themes, all of which appear as dichotomies. The first is politics. In Creon, we see the old form of government. He is king. His word is law. Everyone should obey him. Creon may start out sounding reasonable, but as the play progresses, he becomes more and more adamant that loyalty to the state means loyalty to him. But Haman points out that the people don't agree with Creon, so maybe Creon should listen to the people, a hallmark of democracy. And Antigone's actions are civil disobedience against the authoritarian leader. The second dichotomy is gender. Creon isn't angry just because of Antigone's actions. He is angry that she is a woman. Antigone has stepped out of her place. She should be subservient to Creon, even if he wasn't the king. To Creon, it is just important for her to obey him because he is a man and she is not. In Creon's world, men are always right, even when they might be wrong. Antigone rejects that. The third dichotomy is age. We see this in the relationship between Haman and Creon. Haman even states that he is aware that he is still young, so it isn't his place to question his father. But then he goes on to question his father. With age should come wisdom, but we see in Creon's actions that this is not always the case. I'm not going to go into much more here since this episode is already on the longer side of things, but I have a lot of discussion prompts on the blog. I'd love to hear your thoughts, and as always, the link is in the show notes. On Wednesday, we'll review Book 8 of the Iliad, and on Friday, we'll finish Hesiod's Theogony. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.